As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. Today, once again, it's an honor and privilege to bring back a friend, a teacher, a mentor, and someone who continuously runs away from The Malcolm Effect. Now nah, I'm just playing. <laughs> Welcome back, Annie. So good to hear you. Thank you. It's nice to be back. It's been a while. It's been a while. It's been a while. I know you're out there killing the game. Let's go straight into it. Today's topic, I wanted to have a look at Black Marxism. And I guess the impetus behind me wanting to have this discussion lays on what I've seen prior to joining the academy and also my time into the academy. There is a centrality that this book is given in terms of struggle in terms of thinking about blackness and in terms of thinking about how black people can utilize or if they should utilize the tools of Marx and the book itself is called Black Marxism. Mm. I and many others when first encountering this book think oh this is this is a book that's about to be explaining or teaching me about a synthesizing of Marxism and blackness but it seems like it's not the case. So first things first, do you mind just giving the context in which this book is written in? Yeah, so I guess a, a few things to note. So, so the book originally comes out in 83. And one could say that the reception to the book was relatively muted. It's only really in the 21st century that it's become more and more of a sort of clarion call and come to dominate mm-hmm. some some departments in terms of how people think about the relationship between the black radical tradition and Marxism. Um, mm-hmm. But I would, a, a couple of things I kind of want to flag about that 83 context. I think one can kind of think about the 80s as a time in which we're seeing a reconsolidation of blackness mm-hmm. and what blackness need, uh, what blackness means. We're seeing a kind of retreat in mm-hmm. terms of the Black struggle, which we had seen in the mid 20th century in the 60s and 70s, though that's not to say by any stretch of the imagination that it disappeared by that time. But also we're beginning to see a kind of radical reorganization in the the terms in which people think about Blackness. So a lot of my research focuses on that kind of transition throughout the 20th century into the 21st century of thinking about Blackness as a, a political or relational phenomenon. Mm-hmm. in the mid-20th century, which drives a lot of the anti-imperialist movements, which drives, for example, the kind of underpinning core of the relationship to the Panthers, between the Panthers and Marxist-Leninism. And in that kind of frame, Blackness is like a, a structural position. It's a position by which a, gr- a group of people are assigned particular forms of labor or non-labor, yeah. in the sense like identified as surplus populations and policed on that basis. But it's a relationship to the means of production, yeah. one sense, and also a relationship to political structures, right? As we move through the 20th century, certainly it emerges more aggressively. It's not to say that these phenom- this phenomenon wasn't 
in existence before that. I mean, like there, there's always been sort of nationalists, black nationalists and stuff like that, right? But they were yeah. relatively muted compared to the like the widespread like Marxist-Leninist black movements that we saw in the in the 60s and the 70s. As we move into the 80s, what we're seeing is a resurgence of this idea of blackness as an ethnic phenomenon. Mm-hmm. This idea of like a, a core biological core to blackness. And Stuart Hall kind of describes this difficulty with trying to unpack what blackness is in political theory in a sense, on the one hand, trying to escape sort of biological determinism when it comes to blackness or the biological trait as as refers to it. Um, But on the other hand, constantly, and I think the book kind of suffers from this in some senses, relying on it at times, whether it's like a definition of blackness, which is rooted in heritage, the idea of natural transmissions of um, theories or political outlooks or struggle between generations, rather than that being a product of material and conscious work being done by people. And then the final thing that I would say is that, you know, I mentioned earlier that the response initially was quite muted. Yeah. In a sense, the book is really ahead of its time. Mm. It being a temperature pulse is largely responding to some of the historiography that's coming from a particular strain of white Marxists. It's, it's ahead of itself. It's ahead of its time in that it comes to touch on some of the core issues of racialism and culturalism, which dog contemporary politics. Mm. I realized it was an issue. I mean, in the early 2000s, Paul, not in the 2000s, Paul, Paul Gilroy writes this book on against race, right? Yeah. And it's a meditation in, senses, in a sense of how, how race has come to define our politics, whether mm. it's like racial politics of the state or anti-racist politics, which is still racial in nature from, from below, right? Yeah. And I think that that kind of speaks to a lot of the the contemporary popularity of the text. It seems intuitive to people that there is this kind of long thread of black struggle, which is defined less so by political traditions, but more so by ethnic connections. Thank you so much. I mean, given that is the context of the book and it's almost seen as a response to white Marxists in the 80s in the in the UK at the time is that correct yeah I mean he spent quite a lot of time in the UK while he was writing it okay he does have like quite a, a wide lens in terms of I mean he's he's quite strident in 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 taking the particular strains of Marxism that he's referring to to mean Marxism in general <laughs> um, <laughs> no I get that but we can we can talk about that a bit more I mean there are there are passages of the book where he talks about Marx and Engels like references to specific like European societies and he takes yeah he, he believes that that kind of can only mean that there's a racial ethnic bias in the way that Marx and, and Engels are approaching the question of both productivity and resistance but also sites of potential struggle under the context of capitalism Okay, so I think we can go back onto that mm-hmm. and hopefully unpack that further. But do you mind just, I mean, people can read the book. I mean, there's even lectures on YouTube people can watch regarding the book. Mm-hmm. But perhaps you can give maybe a brief overview of the book and maybe commenting on what you think it does well and what you think are its limitations. Yeah. So in terms of an overview, I would kind of like organize that by the three kind of key arguments which jump out at me. So the first is around Marxism. And the kind yep. of inherent, like Eurocentric vision of Marxism that he presents, the idea that yeah. like, Marxism is built in the particular context of Europe, and so as a context, as a consequence of that, like it's it's structurally unable to account for some of the 
the particular political questions which are raised by the black question. So that's one. And then two, an account of the development of racialism. So he's, okay. he's quite painstaking in describing the kind of racial dynamics or ethnic dynamics of Europe prior to the transatlantic slave trade as a precursor mm -hmm. to some of the ways in which race is used in that context. So he's arguing for race or ethnicity as an import of Europe in the context of the transatlantic slave trade, which comes to kind of like dominate global politics. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, he's kind of looking at the, the tradition of resistance, the black radical tradition in a sense, right? The tradition yeah. of resistance that emerges in response to this. And he kind of like takes a, a lot of black communist <laughs> thinkers mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and kind of like gives us a, 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 a context to the particularly black modes of thinking that they have. Now, I really want to be clear here. Yeah, I don't think that it is true to say that there aren't any particularities to black Marxism. I consider mm -hmm. myself to be a black Marxist. I think we've done an episode on that before. It's funny. I was listening to it last night again, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think it's crucial that maybe the point of distinction is I don't think that black Marxism is a tradition that is exclusively owned by people who in the common lexicon today would be described as black. And I think that, that there's a, that, there's a, a difficulty that I have, and this kind of speaks to some of the limit, limitations with an account, which I don't think that he wants it to be foreclosed to the extent that it has come to be, but an account which is rooted in a, a blackness or black political traditions as like a hereditary in a sense, as like a movement in the black body or a spirit in the black body, which emerges, right? I think that uh, we can we can look uh, across the globe and see that there is a human will to freedom absolutely which manifests itself in many different contexts and i think a, a wider angled picture of uh a wider angled picture of of radicalism as not simply something defined by great dead men who wrote yeah some texts but by movements yes in the engine of history of which those great dead men were in fact part of <laughs> <laughs> I think that that kind of that kind of view shows us that there is actually a lot more in common than people than people think. That being said, things that I think that the book does well, yeah, I think it opens up a conversation. Okay, provides an opportunity to put a particular register of like Marxism, which was developed in the twentieth century and has come to dominate. I mean, we can't say that either. Neither of us can say that we haven't encountered like quote-unquote class-first Marxists who like yes. actually understand class because they don't understand the role of like sociological phenomena in the formation of class itself, yes. race. But I think he, he, he provides an opportunity for us to question that. I'm not sure that the answers that he offers us are necessarily particularly helpful ones. I feel, I feel like yeah. quite polemical to the extent of maybe allowing that to blind or, 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 or to blind or shield us from some of the other dynamics that are play. I think there's a massive glaring hole okay. um, in that. I mean, it's true. He, he takes a set period, but like this is the 1980s, just after the sixties and seventies, where there are mass movements around the world, which define themselves as Marxist Leninist and are black. And I don't think he speaks enough to how those movements reconcile themselves with, with Marxism. Cause I think that actually offers more generative answers. Right. And I think that it kind of brings to the fore, and maybe this is the space for conversation, the distinction between a Marxism, which is rooted in an understanding of a set of conclusions written by a guy in the 
uh, in the 18, uh, sorry in the in the 1800s despite the fact that there were huge developments in global capitalism and imperialism after that man died yes <laughs> so that's one and then like treating them as applicable over time and space i think that's a terrible way to do marxism i agreed versus the kind of vision which i think that everyone from like lenin to mao to Huey newton take up of marxism as a as a hermeneutic or like Marxism as a, a set of questions about the world, right? A, an input mm-hmm. of the world that we inhabit, not the world that was inhabited a hundred years ago or a world that was inhabited 200 years ago. What are the dynamics of capital on today's world and what opportunities do they prov- does that dynamic of capitalism provide us to resist? And I think that there are black people in history who've done that brilliantly. And I, I, I think that if, if one were to seek a history of black Marxism, yeah. I don't think that by the title this this text actually offers that. Okay, no, I hear that. So, I mean, we've spoken about what you think it does well and what you think are some of its issues and limitations. I kind of want to probe more into what else are some of the issues that you feel, but I also want to couple that with why do you think it has the position it has? To borrow a phrase, Marx's phrase, I think he's bending <laughs> the stick. He's what, sorry? Bending the stick a bit. Um, okay. I mean, I don't, I, I don't think Robinson is as dogmatic as as the book would indicate. But I do think that showing, highlighting a particular version of Marxist theory and how that version is sh- like structurally incapable of actually providing real answers to a world in which imperialism dominates is an important feat. I think that's that's part of the reason uh, we get to the position that we do. But I think that the position needn't be so dogmatically opposed or like accusatory (laughs) in nature. I'll give one example of this. So in the text, Robinson kind of speaks of the Eurocentric focus of like Marx and and Engels in in developing Marxist theory and their understanding of class and their understanding of the dynamics between states and also crucially on the question of nationalism. The problem, however, is when Robinson is talking about the conditions for the transatlantic slave trade, almost the entirety of his discussion of that is focused on dynamics within Europe. And there's very little discussion, for example, of the dynamics within the African continent, which actually enabled, crucially, the tech, a technology, which was not something from outside imposed upon Africans of different, yes. we could call it tribal, ethnic, racial, whatever we want to call it, there was a technology yeah. of difference and a, a, yeah. a differentiation of communal identity which is the reason why conquest was one of the major kind of dynamics of slave catching. Yeah. And so like, I think there is an irony in a sense of like making the accusation of Eurocentrism whilst failing woefully to, to, to address actually what are the dynamics on the continent, which make Africa a place primed for the meddling of imperialist powers or make Africa a place primed for uh, a, a place primed for a, the the trafficking of human on an industrial humans on an industrial scale. Yes. Yeah. So okay then, I have a question about Robinson uh, as it regards to his understanding of um, the big question. The big question. His understanding of dialectical materialism and his presentation of that. Do you mind just commenting on that? Yes. <laughs> I think that I I don't know if you've seen that that discussion between Robin Kelly talks about how historical materialism has outlived its use. Yes. The dialectics are always important. I think that 
The issue is that if you go back to Marx, like in the preface, and you work through some of the claims that he's making, specifically the claims the claims that he's making about the function of history and the specificity of history in mm-hmm. in in the capitalist period. In fact, it seems to me to be the case that the the dichotomy that Robinson is trying to draw in his like articulation of dialectical materialism as opposed to like the historical materialism of Marxism is a bit misplaced. Okay. I think that what he's kind of trying to argue for is a particular misreading of Marx being elevated as like the way that Marx thinks about history. I don't think that at any point, at any point, Marx is claiming to offer us a history of all things over all time. And I think that like in many senses, his method or articulation is trying to separate or distance itself from something which is actually not too different from what he's trying to do, which is the reason why so many Black people could take it up and use it. I think there's a, a crucial kind of context to this. Like if you if you look at Huey Newton's writings, you hear dialectical materialism far more than you hear historical materialism. You hear specifically a, more, more of a, a reference to an understanding of not necessarily drawing a sharp distinction in the way that Robinson thinks that Marxists do between the relationship between the like economic base and the superstructure. I, I think we had this conversation before, I'm not sure if I said it in the previous thing about um, the letter from Engels, where we're talk where he's kind of like talking about the mistake that he and Marx makes. Actually, I might I might pull it up. So give me a second on that one so that I can just read it out because I think it's it's quite powerful. But yeah, I think that it just seems strange to pick out a tool of Marxism and sh- like di- divorce it from its roots. I don't know. What do you think? No, I think oftentimes when I heard the conversation between Robin and VJ, and funnily enough, I actually asked Robin DG Kelly this question mm. on the Malcolm effect. And I asked him about what he meant by dialectical materialism has run its as run its course as it were and wait, wait, historical materialism not so historical materialism has run its course mm-hmm. but he also said dialectical thinking is still relevant yeah 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 sure. but so when i asked him he said because and again i funnily enough at the time i was still new to a lot of the concepts but at the time i remember thinking to myself but my reading of marxism and how letter marxism 20th century let's say I make a Cabral, for example, or Rodney have deployed dialectical materialism, isn't the same in the same, this can't be defined the same way as someone like Robin D.G. Kelly is saying how it is. As if to say, you know, for me, I understand historical materialism to be a specific definition or or an explanation on the transition of epochs as it pertains to production and political economy. Mm -hmm. That's how I understand historical materialism. It's an account of the unfolding of history and, and who is the motive force of in that history, in that change and how the, the change in production will born or birth, sorry, a new, a new epoch and a new relationship between the people in those modes of production. That's how I understood it. Before. But when I heard it, <laughs> when I heard the presentation of others, uh, and, and I think Robinson does the same, that wasn't what I, uh, yeah, it wasn't the same thing he, he seems to be speaking to. I don't know. What do you think? I think to sketch a picture of the transition of epochs is not the same mm-hmm. thing as to argue that those things are an, an, an inevitability. Exactly. And I think that that's the, 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 the situation that Marxists of the 20th century found themselves in. 
but two, yeah. one, one has to remember that for, and Kelly makes this point as well, in the 60s and the 70s, like the socialists were winning. People genuinely thought that they were on the eve of revolution. And so that transition from capitalism to socialism to something different, when you're fighting with the global majority against the forces of imperialism, yeah. something very palpable. But then I think that it offers an opportunity to kind of reflect again on the way that Marx treats the question of history. It's not that Marx in his lifetime did not see defeats. You think about the 18th Brumaire. Exactly. Like trying to understand, okay, well, all of the conditions are set. So what's the, what's the missing thing? And I think that's why I'm, I, I really want to read, read from this. So, but in essence, he says, I have interpreted your first main phrase in the following way. According to the materialist conception of history, the factor which is in the last instance decisive in history is the production and reproduction of actual life. More than oh, yeah. this, neither Marx nor myself ever claimed. If someone has distorted the meaning in such a way that the economic factor is the only decisive one, this man has changed the above proposition into an abstract, absurd phrase which says nothing. The economic situation is the base, but the different parts of the structure, the political forms of the class struggle and its results, the constitutions established by the victorious class after the battle is won, forms of law and even the reflections of all these real struggles in the brains of the participants, political theories, juridical and philosophical, religious opinions, and their further development into dogmatic systems. All this exercises also its influence on the development of the historical struggles and in cases determines their form. It is under the mutual influence of all of these factors, rejecting the inf uh, inf infinitesimal, I can't ever say that word, number of accidental occurrences, that is, things and happenings whose intimate sense is so far removed and of so little probability that we consider them non-existent and can ignore them, that the economical movement is ultimately carried out. Otherwise, the application of the theory to any period of history would be easier than the solution of any simple equation. And here's the problem. Historical materialism tells a really pretty story, but real life isn't neat. And that's something exactly. that both Marx and Engels understood. And I think that what they're trying to do is like, specifically Marx, just understand this, like, this concept of like abstract histories. And it's ironic that his intervention formulates itself essentially as an abstract history and prophecy yeah. of a world in which we have not yet inhabited. Now, even if we take it to a, in, even t if we take it to another kind of realm, Marx talks about capitalism producing its own grave diggers. Yeah. I wouldn't say it was necessarily true that the grave diggers were going to dig. <laughs> <laughs> true. And I think that's the thing that people maybe understood at a time. You know, a lot of the traditions today we associate with identity politics, like some of the early, I think, is really engaged with, even down to the like subalternists, really engaged yeah. with Marx's theory because it wasn't so foreclosed. And I think there's a whole piece to be said about, and this is again why I think there's an importance to this work because it offers us opportunities to answer certain questions. There's a whole yeah. piece to be said about how this particular version or vision of Marxism has come to dominate. One which actually offers us no solutions because it traps us in past, it traps us in history. But I wanna, I wanna kind of pivot back. I think in many senses, maybe the argument that I'm making is aside the question of biological determinism or the question of like racialism, yeah. there's not much difference in the vision of Marxism that I picked up from the traditions of Marxism I come from, the black radical yeah. tradition, 
I've stolen that phrase, or the Black Marxists, or the anti-imperialist tradition, or the national liberation yeah. tradition. It's not that much different from what like Robinson is advocating as an alternative. So it's not like the the blueprint didn't exist. But I think it's important also to kind of mark that out from nationalism, specifically Black nationalism, which is what I feel like at times he's trying to reinsert into this politics. To take one case study, it is a common theme for nationalist struggles to initially develop as reactionary struggles. Yeah, You are reacting to colonization. Even in the imperial core, the Black population in America is reacting to what is, as Huey Newton describes, an internal colonization. And so it's just like a seeking to invert power. Mm -hmm. Like people have power now, we have to struggle, so we have power. We have control over our destinies. But people don't really stop and think who's the population of people who constitutes that we. Yeah. Who doesn't have power in the society? Mm -hmm. Now, there are sections of African societies that were colonized who always had power. Yeah. Who still have power. Likewise, there are sections of the European populations that we talk about as if they're like structurally empowered, who never really <laughs> have significant power or control over yeah. their own lives and still don't have significant power and control over their own lives. We can see that unfolding in the economic crisis right now, right? And so that neat distinction, this Manichaean world that he tries to build isn't necessarily as it seems, which requires us to probe a bit further. And that's what people did using the tools of Marxism. Well, rather than assuming based on abstraction where power concretely lies, let's analyze where power concretely lies. Because if Robinson had done an analysis of what was going on on the African continent, we can trace some of the groups of people who developed their like empires their wealth off the back of the off the back of the slave trade, yep. they are still able to exercise dominance and power through that. Mm -hmm. We can trace the dynasties that were built. We can even think about some of the heroes of the black nationalist kind of canon, the Mansa Musas of the world. Yeah. They concretely had power. And so it, it gives us a much more tricky tale than like black population who's oppressed and dominated by the slave trade and therefore like develops resistance to human beings in different parts of the world, dominated in different ways. Yes. Who are responding to that domination. So yes, the answers in Europe are gonna look different to the answers on the African continent, but that's the purpose of solidarity, of drawing analysis across, across geographical lines. And I think that if anything that people take away from like what I'm saying about this and I apologize. I'm sort of happy for people to like message me and ask me for like deeper, deeper engagement with particular issues. Yeah. But um, if anything that people take away, one of the most insidious things that could happen is that we of the global South are divested of Marxism as a tradition of ours, <laughs> as a tradition that we contributed to, as a tradition that we transformed, but also ultimately as a human tradition, which any of us, even if we hadn't yet contributed it, to it, could lay claim to. And I think, I think, I think that battle line that we get in the text is 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 really kind of harmful in potentially producing that. I don't know if that's his intention, though. Thank you. That is a neat segue to my final two questions. So, according to Robin Kelly in the foreword of the book, Robinson is concerned with locating the persistence of Black nationalist politics amongst a variety of movements, and once quote 
And once we understand how to define ourselves in terms of this collective identity, Robinson implies, then perhaps we can understand the persistence of nationalism and various forms of race consciousness, which have never been fully contained under the limited rubric of nationalism, end quote. Black, Nux, Black Marxism is less interested in whether or not these collective forms of struggle and consciousness are essentialist. Instead, Robinson wants to know where they come from and why they continue. Sorry, that was the end of the quote. Is it important to explain the persistence of Black nationalist politic? And what makes the persistence of a Black nationalist politic amongst Black people unique from other rac- radicalised peoples, racialized peoples? A few things. I do think it's important to trace the developments and transmutations of Black nationalist politics. Mm-hmm. It's really important. It's of urgent importance because it, in a sense, also contributes to the persistence of racialism. Yeah. That being said, I think there's a particular focus on Black nationalism for some of the wrong reasons. Okay. I think one of the wrong reasons is the presentation, as I kind of flagged earlier on, of Black nationalism or Blackness as a, as a politic without roots. Mm. The idea of difference as something which is imported to the continent. And that yeah. isn't done deliberately, like it or isn't done explicitly, isn't like, oh, you know, everyone in on the African continent was living Kumbaya and like then we came along or then Europe came along and like divided us up. Though some quarters, some really yeah, dire <laughs> <laughs> do that. It's done by omission. Yeah. Like serious intellectual engagement with the dynamics of difference on the African continent. And so blackness or black nationalism or African nationalisms can be presented as unique phenomena. But I do think there are reasons why blackness is is unique. Even if we go back to Carmichael's Black Power speech, blackness is unique because it's a vantage point, or at least it was a vantage point. The coherence of it today is much more difficult to pin down, right? Because it's not necessarily fitted in the same way to a particular class position. And it's abstracted to the extent that the same corrupt leaders who funnel millions or subaltern leaders said. So you cut out for when you said the same corrupt leaders? Say that again. Who, who funnel like millions of dollars out of African economies every year yeah. for corruption get to present themselves as subaltern. <laughs> like that abstraction is not helpful. But like Carmichael understanding it as a vantage point in a particular moment in history. Yes. There was a particular moment in the 60s and 70s, buttressed by waves of migration from the Caribbean outwards. Yeah. I think that CLR James is invaluable mm-hmm. <laughs> on this phenomenon and the like particularities of like thinking that are some like the particularities of thinking that are made possible by the Caribbean experience of the the the, the layering of the transatlantic slave trade and colonization. So So there's this way of thinking which spreads across the globe, which brings into coherence a mutual recognition of conditions. Mm. That mutual recognition of conditions isn't limited just to Black people. It's defined by those, uh, isn't limited just to like descendants of Africans. It's defined by those collective struggles. Exactly. That's why someone like Dick Gregory can talk about cats who think Black. Yeah. Why someone like Walter Rodney can say that like, Black study is not just the study of African people, but yeah. the way of thinking about the world from the African vantage point. Exactly. So I do think there's that kind of usefulness as a vantage point. I think there's also a piece about 
Black diaspora and the conditions of Black diaspora, which Mm -hmm. Newton puts really beautifully, right? There's a reason why Black struggle was placed at the forefront as a vanguard in the 60s and 70s. And part of that reason was because there are significant proportions of Black people around the world who do not have a land to lay claim to. Yeah. And that condition forces a type of thinking. I mean, there's not really many kind of realistic visions of like what black nationalism can look like in the United States in concrete terms. Yeah. Do we like divide up the states and what would be the likely reaction? But that that's put that to the side for a second, right? Yeah. There are particular ways of thinking which are made possible by the condition of not having a land to lay claim to, which mm-hmm. tend towards universalism. That's, for example, the reason why thinking about the Jewish political canon yeah. has a really big resonance. And if you look at the greats, like there's constantly a discussion between Jewish thought and black thought yeah. as two diasporic peoples. And, and I think for that reason, there's a particularity to black nationalism, which is worthy of discussion, but I just very rarely think the right questions are being asked of black nationalism. I think that, yes, you can sideline the question of, you can you can you can sideline the question of whether or not it's essentialist for a second. It's still important to think about whether or not it's essentialist to be able to understand whether or not it will move us beyond our contemporary condition. But addressing the question of its persistence requires study and understanding of how it relates to the world and its social theory, its theory of change. And yeah. there's a reason why the Panthers would call them pork chop nationalists, because <laughs> reality is there's not much more that we can get from it wow thank you and i guess finally this is something that people hotly contest but in your reading of black marxism could a reading of black marxism lead one to believe that cedric robinson is a race centralist i think a lot of people who read black marxism come out with unconscious ways of thinking in racial essentialism okay I think that there are few ways of characterizing Marxism as a white or Eurocentric mode of thinking, which do not require some inherent inherent racial essentialism. Do I think that that's the like limit of Robinson's thinking? No. Yeah. But do I think that like black Marxism as a standalone text can produce that? Yes. But I want to really kind of hammer home this particular point. And, and I think it's kind of, it's tied to the, the, the quote from Kelly, right? Where like Kelly's yeah. like, he's not, he's not interested if it's essentialist or not. I think that's yeah. a really important question that failing to answer actually produces essentialism. But I really want to hammer home this. Like I said at the top, like when we're thinking about the 1980s, bearing in mind it's the 1980s that we get the transition from black as a dominant language of t- speaking about black Americans or Afro-Americans to African-Americans. Yeah. We're, we're witnessing in real time huge flux in the internal dynamics of blackness. But blackness is a language which by that point had become so ingrained in the kind of political zeitgeist that like people were scrambling for ways to allow it to retain its coherence. Yes. So in many ways, like it's not like Robinson is like somebody who comes from the out- outside and sees like, a bunch of people thinking and crucially like I think the British context of this the fact that Robinson was in Britain in the early 80s like late 70s early 80s where we're actually witnessing some of the initial kind of breakdown of black Asian solidarity Afro-Asian solidarity 
but and and on the basis of some quite essentialist racial arguments, right? And also funded and structured by like the state. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right? Which leads people to think increasingly in ethnic and nationalistic terms. But I want to say that Robinson is a product of the time in which he's writing in. Mm-hmm. Even if that product is not, even if that, the, the dynamics at the time were not immediately obvious to people. Yeah. And I think that that dynamic bore fruit. So, for example, the fact that there was a relatively muted response to Black Marxism when it first came on the scene versus like after the 2000 reissue and certainly in the last 10 years, how many more people are reading and engaging with Black Marxism. It means to say that Robinson didn't produce this moment. Yes. But he has relevance to this moment because he's speaking to this moment and to people's intuitions in this moment and to the way that Mm. we're formed as racial subjects in this moment with an instinct towards biological determinism. We will leave it there. Um, No, thank you. That I will leave any socials in the description of the episode. I'll also leave the letter she read out by Engels. And also, by the time this comes out, there will be, I believe, mid-November. But please check out A's for Activism. We will be doing a reading of Black Marxism led by our friend and comrade Deej. And I hope Annie can make it as well. Until next time, peace out.